Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amminadab. Amminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amon. Amon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud. Abiud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Akim. Akim, the father of Eliud. Eliud, the father of Eliezer. Eliezer, the father of Mathan. Mathan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile in Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. Well, it is that time of year when we tend to think quite a bit about Jesus' birth. Matthew chapter 1 is a passage that probably quite a number of people are going to read over the next week and a bit. And yet it's a passage, isn't it, that sometimes when we turn to it, it can seem rather dry and rather daunting. And yet, in spite of that, it's a really pivotal passage, isn't it? I mean, there must be some sort of reason why Matthew has decided I am going to write this book and I'm going to start off with a big list of names. And so the question I'm asking tonight, this was the title I've given the sermon, what can we learn from a big list of names like this? <coughs> well, I think it's important, first of all, to realise what it is that Matthew is actually doing here. He's not giving us a bunch of interesting facts about Jesus just because you know they're, they're interesting they're tidbits he's not giving us a nice bit of family background so that we can just understand things a bit better he's certainly not setting the scene so that we can wait for the action to actually start the first 17 verses are of crucial importance 
in Matthew's Gospel. And in a sense, they're a bit like a CV. You know, whenever you apply for a job, there's really one question on the company's mind. And that is, is this person qualified for the job they're applying for? And when you write a CV, you set out, well, here is my experience. Here are my qualifications. Here are the skills that I have developed. And the whole idea of your CV is it's supposed to show, yes, I'm qualified for this job that I'm applying for. That's what Matthew's doing here. He's not speaking for himself, of course. He's speaking as an ambassador of Jesus Christ. He's saying here in these first 17 verses, yes, Jesus is qualified for the rule of Messiah. And he does this in two ways. And we're going to look at these in more detail when we reach um, Sunday morning sermon. Verse 1, he sets out his purpose. And if you want to imagine verse 1, if the rest of the 17 verses is like a CV, verse 1 is like the cover letter that you put on the front. And he says in verse 1, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew, whenever he writes this book, he has this great burden that he wants to demonstrate to the readers Jesus is the answer to Old Testament prophecy. And of course, Matthew has a really keen mind and a really good memory for the promises that are in the Old Testament. He knows about the promise to Abraham that we read about in Genesis 12, where he said, one of your descendants is going to be a blessing to all nations. And he knows about the promise to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. One of your sons is going to sit on your throne forever. And just like if you were applying for a job, the advert might have some minimum requirements that you have to meet. Uh, Maybe you need three years of experience or you need certain professional qualifications. Well, the role of Messiah has certain criteria as well. Must be a descendant of Abraham, because we've got the promise in Genesis 12. Must be a descendant of David, because we've got the promise in 2 Samuel 7. Matthew's showing us here, Jesus meets those criteria. He has the qualifications. And we're going to look a bit closer at exactly what that means on Sunday morning. But tonight, I want us to think about some of the surprises that we see in this chapter. And we have two in particular. We have surprising timing, and then we have surprising names. So first of all, surprising timing. I don't know about you, but whenever I read a chapter like this, and there's quite a lot of chapters like this, especially in the Old Testament. Mentally, I start reading faster and I start almost skipping out the names. And it's it's maybe good I was reading that out loud because if I wasn't, it all becomes a bit of a blur. And maybe you go even further than me and your eyes start immediately to glaze over whenever you see a big long list like that. wonder does that say something about the culture in which we live? We live in a very different time, of course, from Matthew whenever he wrote this gospel and back in Israel 
in the first century, family trees were incredibly important. It was a really important pursuit. People were very, very into it. And I think we can see that actually in the way that you know, we look at these verses and we realise Matthew hasn't just cobbled this together. This isn't just some rudimentary research that Matthew has scribbled down on a few pieces of notepaper. He's put an awful lot of effort, hasn't he, into crafting this list. Uh, notice what he says in verse 17. He says, Thus there were 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. It's worth pointing out, by the way, this is not an exhaustive list. There are names that we know about from the Old Testament that haven't been included. But I think Matthew would have expected that, given how into these family trees the Jews were, his first readers would have known perfectly well this is not supposed to be an exhaustive list. It's something he has edited really, really carefully. So we have this lovely symmetry that he describes in verse 17. We've got 14, 14, and 14. Why 14? Well, I don't really know. But I wonder, is it just partly to make this list as memorable as possible? 14 steps to each of the key moments in the history of salvation. 14 from the establishment of Israel to the establishment of the kingship. 14 from the crown to the exile. 14 from the exile to the Messiah. And I wonder is Matthew saying here, listen, because of course he's writing this gospel to those who have a pretty good knowledge of the Old Testament as it is, but I wonder is he saying, listen, you're used to thinking about these different events like Abraham and David and the exile as being really, really momentous and really, really important. Is he saying here, it's time you started thinking about that baby in Bethlehem as being just as momentous an event? It's earth-shattering. And yet, given how earth-shattering it is, it comes at something of a strange time. We have three sections here, and... Our our church Bible has, I think, laid it out quite well. It's sort of split it into these three different sections. We have verse 2 to verse 6. We begin with Abraham. And of course, God has made that promise to Abraham. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And if we know the backstory, we'll know that's a really far-fetched promise that God has made. Because Abraham does not have any children. In Genesis 12. And they're a long, long way past the time whenever Sarah would have been able to bear any children. And yet, it doesn't matter. God keeps his word. And he sends this miracle baby. And if we were reading Genesis for the first time, and we got to the birth of Isaac, and all the the miraculous circumstances that surround that, I wonder would we instinctively think, This must be it. This must be the answer to the promise in Genesis 12. This must be the blessing to all of the nations. And yet, he's not. Then there's the the second section. That's from verse 6 
to verse 11. And we start with David. And God gives him the promise that we read from 2 Samuel. Your throne will be established forever. And then the the further promise in Isaiah chapter 9. That this one who sits in the throne will uphold it with righteousness from this time forth and forever. And then what happens next? Well, along comes Solomon. And he has such a great start. And Maybe if we were reading 2 Samuel for the first time, we'd think, well, maybe this is it. Maybe this is the Messiah. And then we say, well, no, this is not the Messiah either. And as we go through the Old Testament, it feels like we've had a whole series of false starts. And we're tempted to ask the question, when is this so-called Messiah actually going to come? He doesn't come in the days of the patriarchs with all of these exciting stories about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He doesn't come in the days of the kings whenever Israel is at its peak and it has this huge united kingdom and it has these vast riches and the respect of the world. He doesn't even come at the start of the third section after the exile whenever there's this opportunity to make a fresh start and to rediscover the glory of the kingdom. Matthew, by by giving us this family tree, he reminds us just how long God's people had to wait. Why? Well, partly mustn't it be to show us just how much we need the Messiah in the first place. To give us a chance to work up our appetite so that we're hungry by the time Jesus appears on the scene. You know, here's Abraham's family and they have this opportunity to create a nation from scratch and it doesn't take them long to mess it up. Here is David and Solomon and they have these enormous riches and they have this military strength and yet it only takes a couple of generations everything to go pear-shaped and it's almost like God is saying my people have had every opportunity to sort things out for themselves and it hasn't worked and now God says stand back and I will show you how it's done isn't that what God sometimes does with us on a smaller scale He allows us to try and sort things out for ourselves. He allows us to try our wisdom and our strength. And then he lets us fall. And we're tempted in those moments to say, well, this must mean that God is not committed to me. But it's the opposite. It happens because of God's commitment. God is showing us kindness. He is showing us just how much we need God's grace. Because he knows that whenever we see how much we need his grace, that we're going to cling to him in faith all the more. I wonder as as we think about, we're coming to the, the end of 2016, and maybe we think back to some of our struggles or some of our failures over the last year. I wonder is this what lies behind it? God working up an appetite in us for his grace.
Not only that, but the way that Matthew builds the anticipation in this chapter tells us something about the Messiah's power to deliver us. And we have 14 generations, first of all, where the Jewish nation is being built. Then we have 14 generations where, at least at the start, it's at its peak. And then we have 14 generations where it's just this conquered nation. It's a vassal state. It has no real freedom. When does the Messiah come? Doesn't come in the good times. He comes in the bad. He comes whenever his people are at almost their lowest ebb. Isn't that a reminder to us? Whatever situation we're in, however difficult our circumstances are, however weak or helpless or hopeless we are, we are not beyond the grace of our Saviour. And as we eat and as we drink the Lord's Supper on Sabbath morning, we're going to be reminded of that grace. And we're going to be reminded that we're not beyond the reach. The other thing Matthew does as he builds the anticipation is he tells us something about the Messiah's character. He doesn't come to live in a luxurious palace or to be the commander of a great army. He would have been if he'd been born just after David. But from that point, you know, from verse 6 and verse 7 onwards, Israel is on a downward trajectory and and the people in the passage are on a downward trajectory. And by the time we finally reach Jesus, what sort of family is he born into? Well, it's not the royal family, but he's born into the family of a simple carpenter. Doesn't that really set the tone for everything that's going to come next? In the four Gospels, Jesus did not come for a life of comfort. He came in order to serve. Isn't that the very thing that we see in communion as we ponder this great picture? Jesus' body, which has been broken for us. Jesus' blood, which has been shed for us. He came to serve. So the first surprise is God's surprising timing. The second surprise, we have surprising names. Surprising names. I mentioned that we can think of this passage as being a bit like a CV. Um, That's not just an idea I've come up with myself to illustrate this. That is something that a lot of kings have done throughout history. They have used their family trees in order to try and establish their legitimacy and their right to the throne. And they trace the family route from one king to the next king down to themselves. And supposedly that's something that actually Herod, the king in Jesus' day, had done. Albeit his family tree had some pretty heavy editing as he took out some of the more embarrassing names. It's interesting just how airbrushed some of these genealogies could be. That makes sense, doesn't it? You want to associate yourself with the great heroes of the past. You don't want any skeletons in the closet that are going to make people think less of you. And so if you had some ancestor and 
he was a bit of an embarrassment. What often happened is what Herod is supposed to have done, they would conveniently just be left out or be bypassed on the family tree. Well, it's interesting to look at this list. Some of them are heroes, David and Abraham. Some of them are, are villains. You know, we've got Rehoboam, who, who caused the whole kingdom to fall apart. We have Manasseh, who filled the streets of Jerusalem with innocent blood. Some of them are well-respected. Some of them are downright embarrassments. And Matthew doesn't look to do anything to airbrush history. Maybe the most fascinating thing of all, Matthew does something that was not common practice. He doesn't just go for the four fathers. He also lists the four mothers. And we have five women. We've got Tamar in verse 3, Rahab and Ruth in verse 5, Bathsheba in verse 6, and then Mary in verse 16. And it's interesting that they've been included. What makes them doubly interesting is every single one of them has something of a black cloud hanging over their reputation. We've got Tamar. Slept with her father-in-law. Now that's not bad enough. She tricked him into doing it by posing as a prostitute. We have Rahab. She went a step further, I suppose. She didn't just pose as a prostitute. She actually was a prostitute. Not only that, she was a Canaanite, which was a particularly wicked nation of people. There was Ruth. She was a Moabite. Uh, Moab was a nation where the women were absolutely notorious for their seduction and for their immorality. And in fact, Ruth even though she doesn't demonstrate any of that herself, she's still a character who only actually appears on the scene because Elimelech and Moab made some really bad, really sinful choices by going to Moab in the first place. There's Bathsheba. That's in verse 6. A woman who committed adultery. And in fact, notice how Matthew really sticks the knife in here and he's not sticking the knife into Bathsheba as much as he's sticking it into David doesn't even call her by her name describes her as Uriah's wife as if to remind us of exactly what David had done and then there's Mary she's not married and yet she's pregnant she is the subject of gossip and of shame I'm not giving all this detail about these five women because they were the worst names in the list. They weren't. People like Manasseh went far, far further than they did. But I'm including them, even though some of them are blameless, and even though some of them were under serious pressure, because it's interesting, given that the convention of the day was to only list the men, Matthew had no reason whatsoever why he had to include these women. Apart from Mary, perhaps, he could have very, very easily passed them by and avoided the embarrassment. 
but he doesn't. Why? Because right from the start, Matthew is telling us something that Jesus is going to do. He's telling us no matter how much one of his people fouls up, they can never foul up so much that Jesus can't deliver them. He's reminding us even someone who is an outsider can be brought into Christ's family. He's telling us even someone who you would think has disqualified themselves can be restored by God's grace. He's showing us even someone who is weak and who has absolutely nothing to bring to the table can be wonderfully used as part of God's plan. What's Matthew doing? He's reminding us it's all about grace. And on Sabbath morning, we have a wonderful illustration, don't we, of God's grace. He invites all of us who believe, no matter how no matter how much or how little we deserve it, all of us who believe, and he says to us, this is my body, which is broken for you, take and eat. This is my blood, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And he says to us, drink all of you. Not those of you who deserve it, as if that were possible. But everyone who follows me, whether you have got a shady past like Rahab, whether you've got a massive blot in your conscience like Bathsheba, whether you have come late to the party like Ruth, or whether you're just a bog-standard nobody like many of the men on this list, Jesus says to us, my grace is for you. Like I said, this passage is a bit like a CV. Matthew is setting out for us how Jesus is perfectly qualified for the job. Of course, we all know that sometimes from our own experience, it's not always the most qualified person who gets the job, is it? Sometimes it's not what you know, it's who you know. Here's a situation where that is not a bad thing. We're just like the names on this list, aren't we? We are not qualified in the slightest for a place in Christ's kingdom. And yet for us, just like Abraham, just like David, just like Ruth and Bathsheba, just like Mary, it's not what we know. It's who we know. And by God's grace, this uniquely qualified Messiah has made himself known to us and on that basis he invites us this coming Lord's Day to sit around the table and to share in this family meal. So as we think about our unworthiness and as we think about God's grace for those who don't deserve it let us pray that God would give us a real appetite for this meal we're going to share in this coming Sabbath. Well, let's, let's come and pray. Our Father, we thank you for 
the wonderful lessons that we learn in this list of names. We thank you especially for how your grace shines out so clearly. And we pray, Father, that as we we come to eat and drink this coming Lord's Day, that your grace would be at the forefront of our minds. We pray that our unworthiness would be also there in our minds, but we pray that it would be even overshadowed and overwhelmed by an acute sense of your grace for us. Father, we pray that you would fill us with joy and with thanksgiving as we join with our brothers and sisters and as we eat in your presence. And we pray too that as we continue to look at the background of our Saviour Jesus, that you would teach us more about him and that you would give us a greater longing to be like him and to serve him faithfully. Father, we ask it in his name. Amen.